0: for the name of the Lord, and a royal palace for himself. So Solomon assigned 70,000 men to carry loads, and 80,000 men to quarry stone in the mountains, and 3,600 to supervise them. Then Solomon sent word to Huram, the king of Tyre. That can also be pronounced Hiram. In fact, I'm going to pronounce it Hiram. Solomon sent word to Hiram, the king of Tyre, Tyre, saying, As you deal with David, my father, as you dealt with David, my father, and sent him cedars to build him a house to dwell in, so do for me. Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God, dedicating it to him to burn fragrant incense before him and to set out the showbread continually and to offer burnt offerings morning and evening on Sabbaths and on new moons and on the appointed feasts of the Lord, our God, this being required forever. In Israel. And the house which I am about to build will be great, for greater is our God than all the gods. But who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? And now send me a skilled man to work in gold, silver, brass, and iron, and in purple, crimson, and violet fabrics, and who knows how to make engravings, to work with the skilled men whom I have in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father provided. Send me also cedar, cypress, and algum timber from Lebanon, for I know that your servants know how to cut timber of Lebanon, and indeed my servants will work with your servants." To prepare timber in abundance for me, for the house which I am about to build will be great and, will be great and wonderful. Now behold, I will give to your servants, the woodsmen who cut the timber, twenty thousand cores of crushed wheat, and twenty thousand cores of barley, and twenty thousand baths of wine, and twenty thousand baths of oil. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, answered in a letter sent to Solomon, Because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. Then Hiram continued, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, endowed with discretion and understanding, who will build a house for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. And now I am sending a skilled man endowed with understanding, Huram Abi, the son of a Danite woman and a Tyrian father, who knows how to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood, and in purple, violet, linen, and crimson fabrics, and who knows how to make all kinds of engravings, and to execute any design which may be assigned to him to work with your skilled men and with those of my lord David your father now then let my lord send to his servants wheat and barley oil and wine of which he has spoken and we will cut whatever timber you need from Lebanon and bring it to you on the rafts on rafts by sea to Joppa so that you may carry it up to Jerusalem And Solomon numbered all the aliens who were in the land of Israel, following the census which his father David had taken, and 153,600 were found. And he appointed 70,000 of them to carry loads, and 80,000 to quarry stones in the mountains, and 3,600 supervisors to make the people work. Amen. Pray with me. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are a speaking God, a God who has willed to reveal himself, uh, to your, to humanity, not just through your creation. You do reveal yourself, uh, much about yourself through the creation, Lord. But, uh, salvation is only found through your special revelation, through your speech, uh, coming through your, uh, prophets and apostles and of course the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that you have willed to speak to us and to show us the way of salvation and to show us um, the beauty of our Savior, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our High Priest and our Temple. Would you please allow us to see Jesus in this text? Would you allow us to love you more as a result of having pondered uh, this text as I preach it? And would you please make us better equipped to be lights in the midst of this dark world in which we live? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Children. All of you, I'm pretty sure, live in a... House, right? Nod your head if you live in a house and not a tent. Do you live in a house? Okay, good. You all live in a house. You live in a house. Good. Yeah. You all live in a building, which is called a house. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, children. But um, that house was designed, that is, the plans for it were made, how, how it would look. And it was built by one or more People. I was going to say men, but it might have been women too. But a human being, or one or more human beings, had to build your house that you're in, and had to had had to design that house, and then had to go out and um, put that design into effect by putting up walls and putting up beams and uh, putting up uh, putting a roof on it and and uh, and bricks and that sort of thing. And let me tell about that house and the way it was built, kids, that you live in, that house, the person or persons who built that house, needed a lot of talent and a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge to build that house. If you'd have said, Pastor Mark, why don't you go build our house? I wouldn't have had a clue, kids. You'd be stuck in a tent if you wanted me to build your house. Because I know nothing about building houses. Some people in here do, but not me. My point is you need a wise person, a wise man or men or women, to build a house that, uh, so that it won't collapse on you when you're sleeping at night right, or eating dinner. So that it'll keep the, the rain out and the rats out and the cockroaches out, maybe, uh, of the house. Anyway, you get the point. Kids, this passage is about the building of a house. But not really so much about the building of the house, but the builder of the house. The house I'm talking about, kids, is the house of God in the Old Testament. You know what it's called? It's called the temple. The temple in Jerusalem. And God very often refers to it, the the scripture, the Old Testament scriptures, God speaking through them, very often refers to that temple as uh, the house of the Lord, or God's house, or my house, God speaking when he says that. But it's God's house on earth, the temple was back in the day. And God's house needed a builder, and needed a wise builder. And you know who that builder was of that house? Solomon. We're going to be looking at, the, at King Solomon of Israel, the king of Israel after David, David's son. And we're going to be looking at it for quite a three or four or five chapters. Uh, the next few chapters are going to be about Solomon. But one of the things about Solomon that was probably, it was just about the most important thing. There's one other thing I can think of that might be a little bit more important than this. But... One of the most important things about Solomon was that he built God's house. The other important thing that I'm thinking about is that he was a type of Jesus. He was one of the most preeminent types of Christ in the Old Testament, and particularly in Chronicles, by the way. The Chronicler portrays him, unlike the author of Kings, who talks all about uh, Solomon's mistakes and sins and stupidity, Almost none of that is found in the Chronicler's assessment of Solomon. And there's a reason for that. Because he's, he has a different task in mind. And that is he's painting a picture of the coming Messiah through the Davidic king who is Solomon. And one of the most uh, best examples of, uh, of, of the Davidic kings uh, in their uh, pointing to Christ. So... Uh, this title of this passage, this uh, sermon rather, is the wise master builder. Now, I'm stealing that from the New Testament, and Paul applies that term to himself. But we're going to apply it to Jesus. Uh, excuse me, to Solomon. Oh, and to Jesus uh, at the end. Uh, but that's the title of this um, this sermon: the wise master builder. So, just a reminder of some of the background here before we get into the the points of the sermon. First and second, our first and second Chronicles were originally one book in the Hebrew Bible. In Hebrew, it's one book. And by the way, Kings, same way. One book, not two. Okay? Um, Two different authors of the Kings. The Kings were written uh, probably about 550 BC. Remember, the bigger the number when you use BC, the further back you're going. Probably about 550 BC. Uh, was when the kings were written by an unknown human author uh, some have speculated it was Jeremiah but that's probably not a very good guess. Uh and and Chronicles was written the Chronicles were written about probably between 450 and 400 BC. So about 100 to 150 years after Kings were uh Kings was written uh, more than likely. Um, it was composed the Chronicles that is uh were composed after the Jewish people uh, began returning from their exile in Babylon. Uh, Again, probably uh, between 450 and 400 B.C. Early Jewish tradition says that Ezra was the author of Chronicles, but there's no definitive proof of that, either in the Bible or extra-biblical evidence. And so I'm simply going to refer to this divinely inspired human author as the Chronicler. And I'm going to keep using that term. I've told you that before, but I want to remind you of that point. The chronicler is the author of first and second, our first and second chronicles. And the chronicles were originally written to those, uh, Jews who had returned to the land of Israel after being exiled in Babylon. That's his audience. These very poor, recently enslaved, in some sense still enslaved, just no longer in Babylon, now in in the land of Israel, uh, enslaved to uh, the Babylonians uh, because they were uh, under the Babylonian king. He was still uh, uh, he was still their king. But they have returned to the land. The chronicler is writing uh, this <clears throat> uh, his work to them, and the chronicler's purpose in writing this work was twofold there's twofold purpose first he intends to give his post-exilic that is after the exile in other words the returned people his he he purposes to give his post-exilic readers an accurate record of their nation's past in case many of them had forgotten about it or had not known about it because they were in Babylon and uh, and their traditions and so on had been lost in many ways, perhaps. Many didn't know the history, uh, didn't have access to the ki- uh, uh, kings, uh, the writings of the kings. Uh, and so he is writing to refresh the nation, if you will, the returned nation, or those that did return, of Israel's past, especially their kings, um, especially the kings of Judah. And... His second purpose is this, to motivate his readers, the uh, returnees, to learn and apply lessons from this refresher that is the Chronicles, this refresher of Israel's history, to apply lessons from what they learn, from what he writes, to their own experience in their own lives in the, in the Promised Land now that they're back. That's what he's doing as he writes this, the human author. Of course, the divine author wants to not doesn't just apply this to the uh, the Jewish returnees, but to the church down through the ages. So it has plenty of application to us as well. Um, It's important to keep this in mind, and I'm going to keep reminding you this periodically as we go through Chronicles. But it's important to keep this in mind that the chronicler relied heavily, and I do mean heavily, upon the earlier divinely inspired writings that had already been written, particularly Samuel and Kings, for his content. Um, For example, much of the content of what we know as our second chronicles that we're looking at uh, in the months ahead, much of the content here was more or less lifted from first and second kings. I'm not sure what percentage of it. It might be as much as two-thirds. I don't know. Uh, But a good chunk of chronicles is just lifted right out of second... First and Second Kings, but regularly the chronicler makes additions or deletions, intentional additions and deletions to what was what's found in Kings. So it's very important to to know, understand that what the chronicler is doing is to compare the two passages. When the, when you have uh, dual accounts of the same incident, one in Kings, one in Chronicles, it's important to look and go, what does what did the chronicler do? Because he left some things out that was in Kings, and he added some things that weren't in Kings. What's, what's he getting at? So I'm going to try to help us, as we go through Chronicles, see the Chroniclers and the Holy Spirit's particular message through the Chronicles uh, that differs somewhat from the message in Kings, even though much of the material is the same. So that leads me uh, to the uh, three points. The first one is the longest one. The last two are much shorter. They really are. Um, and here are the three points, so you know they're coming. First, we see Solomon is endowed with wisdom to build Yahweh's house. It's the first and the major point, most significant point. Secondly, Gentiles are enlisted to help build Yahweh's house. And then thirdly, and I'll explain this when I get there, Solomon did not actually build Yahweh's house. Just wait for it. First, Solomon is endowed with wisdom to build Yahweh's house. Now, I want to now talk about for a moment, again, about the differences between the King's account and the Chronicle's account here. The author of Kings, whoever he was, represents the wisdom that God gave to Solomon... That we read about in the first chapter of of first Chronicles, the the author of Kings represents that wisdom as a broadly useful sort of wisdom. In other words, a broad a broad wisdom uh, that was use, that resulted in judicious decision making by Solomon. That that also resulted in um, effective administration by him of his of his country over which he presided and. That also resulted in an enhanced international reputation for this king who was uh, the son of David. But the wisdom that he got was broad, uh, uh, a broad wisdom. It's represented by the king's writer that way. Okay? Just great wisdom of all different varieties. Okay? But the chronicler, for the chronicler, the wisdom that God gave to Solomon. Was a particular, he wants to focus on a particular aspect of that wisdom. This isn't denying what the King's uh, writer said. But he wants to say, particularly, this wisdom that God gave him was particularly important for one thing. And you've probably already guessed what that is. Wisdom to build. Wisdom to build. Yes, to build a ca- uh, his, uh, his, uh, his nation and his uh, his country, uh, yes, to build a house for himself, a royal palace for himself, but particularly to build a house for God to dwell in, a permanent, more permanent than the tabernacle, which was just a tent, uh, residence for God to dwell in, a, in a localized way on Earth. That's what the wisdom was particularly for in the mind of the chronicler, and he wants to communicate that to us, the reader, and of course the Holy Spirit does too. So that's the focus. Um, the fact, by the way, that the chronicler was, um, uh, the, that for the chronicler, the wisdom that God gave to Solomon was particularly for the building of the temple, the tabernacle's replacement, the, the temple. Um, it, that is evidenced that fact is evidenced by the uh, by the fact that in chronicles the king of tyre who uh, whose, whose uh, letter we read starting in verse eleven of our chapter, in chronicles the king of Tyre does not praise God for giving David a wise son over this great people. That phrase that I just said there comes from the king 's account the king 's writer says uh, in his in his um, rendering of, in his account of what uh, uh, the king of Tyre, Hiram, said, the king said uh, that he, he praised God for giving David a wise son over this great people. That's what the king said. Well, the chronicler changed that. And, of course, this doesn't mean that the king's, uh, what the king's account said wasn't actually said. It just means that something else was also said, And it was left out of Kings, but the chronicler is going to include it. So what is that? This is what the chronicler said instead. He said in, uh, that, uh, in verse 12, I'll just read it for you. Look at verse 12 with me. Then Huram, and we're going to say Hiram, we're going to call him Hiram so he's not confused with Huram Abi, who's down in verse 13, who was sent by Hiram. We're going to call him Hiram because uh, the King's account does. Then Hiram continued, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has made heaven and earth, uh, who has given King David a wise son, endowed with wisdom and understanding, and hear it, who will build a house for the Lord. Oh, and by the way, a royal palace for himself too, but the emphasis is on the house of the Lord. Has been endowed with discretion and understanding, who will build a house for the Lord. Rather than what the king's writer said, for a a great uh, son over this great people. So you see the chronicler's, he's modifying, he's editing what he's going to include, and it's not included in the king's. And he's making a point. Wisdom for building God's house. That's what this wisdom is particularly important that we understand it was for. Now, the fact that Solomon was endowed with the wisdom needed to build God's temple is confirmed by the chronicler in this account, his own portrayal of Solomon as the new Bezalel. Does anybody remember that name, Bezalel? chapter 1. Bezalel's name is actually mentioned. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. This is when uh, Solomon calls the great assembly. Remember, they're going to go up to the high place. They went up to the high place at Gibeon. He brings all of the nation together to uh, uh, worship God and ask for basically consecrate his reign over Israel. And it says in verse 5, Now the bronze altar, which Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, was there meaning at Gibeon, before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the assembly sought it out. So Bezalel is brought up here. And by the way, the only place where Be- Bezalel's name is found outside of uh, the, the, uh, um, the occurrence back in, um, I think it's Exodus. Exodus 31 and 38, 36 and 38. The only place outside of Exodus where Bezalel's name is found is here in Chronicles. Anyway, so the chronicler represents Solomon as a new Bezalel. So we're going to talk about Bezalel for a second. Second, uh, this was the man. Turn to Exodus thirty-one. We're going to read it. This was the man that God selected, the Lord selected, back in Moses' day to head up the design and the construction of the wilderness tabernacle, the tent of the Lord, along with its various furnishings that had to be made in the wilderness so that God could dwell amongst his people. So let's look at Exodus 31. We're going to read the first five verses here. So you uh, And keep your finger in this, because I'm going to refer back to this again in a moment. We're going to read some other verses from Exodus 31. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, Notice the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship, to make artistic designs for work in gold, in silver, and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of Of craftsmanship. Notice particularly, he was given the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge. Bezalel was. Okay? Well, just as the Lord singled out Bezalel in Exodus, in Exodus 31, to spearhead the design and the construction of the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. He also likewise chooses Solomon to head up the design and construction of the tabernacle's more permanent replacement, the temple, here in uh, Chronicles. Look back with me at Chron- First Chronicles. Keep your finger in Exodus 31. Look at First Chronicles chapter 22. Uh, we aren't going through First Chronicles, but I'm periodically going to be going back to it because, again, it was all one book at one point. Uh, they go together. So 1 Chronicles, chapter 22, verses 7 through 10, reads as follows. I'll start at verse 6. Then he called for his son, this is David, then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. Now verses 7 through 10, listen. And David said to Solomon, My son, I intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood. And have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. For his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days." He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son. This is where the analogy with Jesus is so important. Uh, He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. God chose Solomon specifically to build the tabernacle's replacement. Right? And he gave him wisdom, like Bezalel had wisdom. Chapter 1, we looked at it last week. And the fact that Solomon is in effect the new Bezalel is evident from the fact that, first of all, both of the men were from the tribe of Judah. I pointed out that Bezalel was a Judite, so we know, of course, David and Solomon were. Both of these men received wisdom from God for their respective building tasks. Our chapter, verse 12, that I read a moment ago. And also, it was only after Solomon sought the Lord at the altar that Bezalel had built, back in chapter 1, verse 5, that God, only after that, endowed him with wisdom. But he sought the Lord at Bezalel's altar. It's actually the Lord's altar. But the one that Bezalel did, some hundreds of years earlier. Constructed. So, again, the chronicler and the Holy Spirit want us to think of Solomon as the new Bezalel. And that this is in fact the case, that he is being represented as the new Bezalel, the builder of God's house, is is bolstered by the fact that this chronicler represents Huram-Abi as a second Aholiab. Okay, now who's Oholiab? Anybody remember that name? Oholiab was appointed by God back in Moses' day to be Bezalel's assistant. Go back to uh, Exodus chapter 31. Now we read verses 1 through 5. Now we're going to read verses 6 through 11 of Exodus 31. So so it's Moses' day. He's just appointed, uh, called Bezalel to uh, be the principal builder of uh the tabernacle and its furnishings, and then we read in verse six, and behold, I myself, this is the Lord speaking, have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ami uh Amisam oh boy Ahisamak, there we go, of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all who are skilled I have put skill, that they may make all that I have commanded you. "...the tent of meeting, and the ark of testimony, and the mercy seat upon it, and all the uh, furniture of the tent." The table also, and its utensils. And the pure gold lampstand, with all its utensils. And the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, also with all its utensils. And the laver, and its stand, the woven garments as well. And the holy garments, for Aaron the priest. And the garments for his sons, with which to carry on their priesthood. The anointing oil also, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them according to all that I have commanded you." But notice Oholiab is appointed to be Bezalel's assistant in all the task of uh, supervising the design and construction of the tabernacle and its furnish- furnishings. The chronicler, back to the chronicles now, the chronicler represents in this text Huram Abi, who uh, king of Tyre, we're going to call him Hiram's for lack of so we don't get confused. Hiram sends to Solomon at Solomon's request. Huramabi is the guy, the skilled man that Solomon has requested from the king of Tyre. And the chronicler rep- represents this man, Huramabi, as a sort of uh new Oholiab. Uh, uh, oh, Oholiab. There we go. He was a highly skilled craftsman, as I said, uh, that uh, the king of Tyre sent Solomon in response to Solomon's request. We read of that in verses 3 and 4, uh, 13 rather and 14 of our text. And now I am sending, this is Hiram speaking through a letter, now I'm sending a skilled man, endowed with understanding, Huram Abi, the son of a Danite woman, and a Tyrian uh, a Tyrian father, who knows how to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood, and so on. Now, there are a number of ways in which the Chronicler portrays Huram Abi. Some of them are kind of complicated, and um, uh, kind of academic stuff, if I can put it that way. Uh, but what I'm going to do is, there are a number of ways in which he represents him as the second Oholiab, but for the sake of time, I'm going to ask you just to trust me and not give you the details. But it's in there. And if you want to read the commentaries afterwards, just ask me and I'll show you. Okay. But the point is, it's pretty clear he's represented as a, uh, n- a new version of Oholiab that we read of, uh, who was Bezalel's assistant. Who Bezalel being uh, the uh, the new uh, Solomon being the new Bezalel. So the point of saying all of that, I, what I've said, is that the chronicler's represent- representation um, uh, of Huram, Abri, Huram Abi as the second Oholiab supports the argument that Solomon. And this is what's more important: that Solomon is the second Bezalel. Okay. And the reason the chronicler portrays Solomon as the new Bezalel is to highlight, and here's the bottom line. I know this is complex. But it's to highlight the fact that, like Bezalel, God gave Solomon wisdom specifically to build him a new earthly dwelling place. That's what all the paralleling is for. It's to make this point... Solomon is the new, divinely appointed builder of God's new house, more permanent house for him to dwell in. Now this God-given wisdom that Solomon was given by the Lord that we read of last week in the first chapter is what enabled him to see his need for Hiram, King Hiram's assistance in this task of building the temple and to then Proceed to ask Hiram for the help, and the chronicler is essentially the uh, Solomon's request. Starting in verse three, is actually the Solomon, uh, the chronicler, kind of saying, "Here's some of Solomon's wisdom displayed to you. He knows when uh, when he needs help, and he knows from whence to get it, and he seeks it out. Wisdom." caused Solomon to do that. The chronicler represents the Solomon uh the wisdom of God that given to Solomon this way. Also this God given wisdom is also what enabled Solomon to set the terms of payment, or set, I should say, terms of payment, that would be agreeable to Hiram and to uh, those who would participate uh, uh, that came from Hiram's um, kingdom to help. Verse ten. Uh, we give that have that uh, list of now behold Solomon talking here. I will give your servants the woodsmen who cut the timber twenty thousand cores of crushed wheat, and twenty thousand cores of barley, and twenty thousand baths of wine, twenty thousand baths of oil. And then uh, uh, Solomon uh, uh, Hiram uh, accepted that in verse fifteen. Now then, let my lord send to his servants what you said you would send. That sounds good to me. Is what uh, Hiram is saying essentially. To Solomon. And the fact that Solomon knew what was necessary to incentivize Hiram uh, to send his people to help him is also represented as divine wisdom. This is God's wisdom that caused him to come up with this, uh, if you will, this offer uh, that was acceptable to the king of Tyre. Well, as a recipient of God-given wisdom to build God's house, I hope you see that Solomon is also something more than just the king of Israel of old. He is also a type of Christ. A type of the true and ultimate king of Israel. Jesus as the Messiah was endowed with infinite wisdom, not just great wisdom like Solomon, but infinite wisdom uh, in his role as the King of Israel. If you look at Isaiah uh, eleven, uh the prophecy of messianic prophecy here speaks of that wisdom that was given to Jesus. Uh, I'll read it, uh verses one through five. Then a shoot this again, Isaiah 11, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of, note, wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he uh, what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, over whom he would rule, and is now ruling. Although we'll rule more fully at the second coming, of course. Um, ruling over his house, if you will, with wisdom given to him by the Father. Also Jesus, as God's Messiah, is also the wise master builder of his church, and is represented as so by that very well known passage in Matthew, Matthew sixteen. Or Jesus says, uh, uh after Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God, uh, and he commends him for saying that, and he says in verse eighteen, And I I say to you Uh, that you are Peter, and upon this rock, Peter, the uh, the confessing apostolate and its confession of Jesus as the Messiah, I believe is what the rock is there. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus said that. I will build my church. Implied in uh, Isaiah 11 that I just read is, with the wisdom given to me from the Father. To be the king of the church his people down through the ages. He is the ultimate figure that is in view on at least the Holy Spirit's mind, if not the Chronicler's mind, but probably also the Chronicler's mind, uh, as this text is written. And notice the Chronicler tells us, through Hiram's quill here, in the, the letter that Hiram wrote back to Solomon in our text, the Chronicler tells us that God made Solomon king of Israel, Because of his love for Israel. Verse 11 of our text makes that point. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, answered in a letter sent to Solomon, and it says, Because the Lord loves his people, he has made you, meaning Solomon, king over them. Just as God made Solomon king over ethnic Israel because he loved them and wanted them to have a wise king presiding over them and ruling over them, he also made his son king over spiritual Israel because he loves us and wants us to have a wise and um, noble king ruling over us. That is a blessing, folks, in case you didn't hear that. That is a great blessing. This text points us to Christ, the quintessential wise king who has built a house, and the house is us. It is us, along with the elect down through the ages. Briefly, next two more points, but they are really brief. I do promise you this. So the first point is that uh, Solomon is endowed with wisdom to build Yahweh's house. Now we see also in this text Gentiles are enlisted to help build Yahweh's house. Solomon appeals to a man named Hiram for help. This man is the king of a place called Tyre. Anybody know where Tyre is? If you looked at your studied your maps in the back of your Bible, you know it's part of a land called Phoenicia, which was a pagan Gentile land north of uh, and east of, mostly north of Israel. It was in Phoenicia. It, had, it was a Gentile land with a Gentile monarch, and his name was Hiram. Solomon seeks out this non Jew's help in the building of Yahweh's new dwelling place, the tabernacle, or the temple rather. And his help that Hiram, a Gentile, gladly agrees to provide, as we see in verses 11 through 16 of our text a Gentile, to build God's, his physical earthly dwelling place. Gentile fingers, if you will, on God's house. But King Hiram wasn't the only Gentile who participated in the building of God's new, more permanent house. Solomon also, we read in verses 17 and 18, compelled resident aliens within the borders of Israel to assist in the temple's construction. Let's read that real quickly. And Solomon, verse 17, numbered all the aliens, resident aliens, it can be translated that way as well, who resided in the land. Former uh, Canaanites is what we're probably talking about here. Mostly uh, Canaanites. Remember, not all the Canaanites were were, uh, were removed from the land like they were supposed to be. Um, Solomon numbered all the resident aliens uh, who were in the land of Israel following the census which his father David had taken and 153,600 were found. And he, Solomon, appointed 70,000 of them to carry loads. He said, you will carry these loads because he's king. And 80,000 to quarry stones in the mountains. You will quarry these stones and uh, 3,600 supervisors to make the people work the Gentile people work to cut the stones that were in the temple, to cut the beams that were in the temple that God dwelt in thereafter. See what I'm getting at here? What's the significance of this? Of, of God's providential enlistment through Solomon of the help of Gentiles in the uh, age of the Jew, in the Mosaic economy, The Davidic economy, which were uh, part of the Old Testament age uh, when the chosen people were Jewish. Significance is, what's happening here in this text we're looking at foreshadows this. By this I mean, with the exception of tomorrow, uh, this I mean uh, Gentiles who are um, uh, part of the spiritual church of God. It foreshadowed the inclusion of the Gentiles within the New Testament temple, which is the New Testament church. And, by the way, Hiram's words in verse... Which I I failed to write it down. Um, uh, I think maybe it is verse 11. Uh, No, uh, verse 12 and following. Hiram's words of blessing... And praise to Israel's God likewise foreshadows and foreshadowed the praise that we Christians are offering up to God in our day and that you offered up here uh, when you were singing. And by the way, we were still offering up praise when you're sitting, too. Praise isn't just when you're singing. Worship isn't just when you're singing. Some churches get that wrong. We have the worship and then we have the preaching. No, 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 no. That's not right. The whole thing is worship. But anyway, that's another story. Gentiles. God has always intended to bring Gentiles into the church. He did it in the, under the Old Covenant, sporadically, here and there. Hittite, you know, Hittite here, and a, and a Canaanite there, and an Aramaean there. Uh, but he did it en masse in the New Testament age. Gentiles are enlisted to help build Yahweh's house. And thirdly, Solomon did not actually build Yahweh's house. What do you mean by that? The text says he did, Mark. Well, what I mean by that is he didn't build a residence that actually contained God. That represented and identified in the structure the limits of God's presence in space. The temple didn't do that. God is a God who transcends space. Which means that there is absolutely nowhere in all of creation where God is not present, including hell. He is everywhere, and Solomon knew it. In verse 6, he made it uh, explicit. He said, But who is able to build a house for him, for Yahweh, for the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him? Who am I that I should build A house for him. A little box on a little planet in a little solar system. He knew he... God wasn't going to be sandwiched into that building that he built when he built it. Oh, God would be in there. But he wouldn't be sandwiched into there and limited by the walls of the house. The house was not going to contain the God of the universe. God is everywhere, folks. And because God, and this is the fancy theological term, is omnipresent or immense uh, is another term that is sometimes used by theologians to describe his omniscience or omnipresence, rather. Because God is immense, no location in the universe, no matter how big it is, is capable of fully containing. Yahweh, of defining the limits of his presence. And that's an important point made in this text by Solomon and the chronicler quoting Solomon. So what? Why, why are you telling me that, what's, what difference does that make in my life? Well, it makes a lot of difference in your life, folks, and mine. What it means is you are always in God's presence. Always. No creature is hidden from his sight. Text, The scriptures tell us that. No matter where we are, God is always there. If you were to drill a mine shaft 1,000 miles down into the core of the earth, you'd cook down there, but let's just say you could and you had air conditioning. If you could drop down to the bottom of that shaft 1,000 miles into the bowels of the earth, God would be there. Likewise, if you could instantaneously transport yourself 100 million light years from here, God would be there too can't get away from him. Not even in hell. The damned can't get away from God in hell. They experience only the wrath of God in hell. Not the love and the mercy and the grace of God. Like we will, if we're in Christ. But you have to be in Christ, folks. You have to be in Christ. Not only you have to be in Christ to avoid going to hell for eternity, which is never-ending. But you have to be in Christ in order to have access to the throne of grace, in order for God to hear your prayers. You have to be covered, you have to be united to Jesus, so that your sins are forgiven, so that God can't isn't forced to look away from you, metaphorically speaking. Which he, Which he must, in some sense, do to the prayers of the pagan, who pray to him, uh, sort of, and call him their God, but aren't. Who, uh, Who isn't, rather. But God is everywhere. He's here. He's in China. He's in Pakistan. He's in the bottom of the Marianas Trench. He's at the top of Mount Everest. He's everywhere. He's in Alpha Centauri. You have access to God because He's everywhere. Always. And you have access to His love and His grace and His mercy and His kindness and His blessings. If you will just ask Him. Ask Him. And you know that He is listening and He cares about you and wishes to bless you and answer your prayers if you're trusting in Jesus as your only hope of being forgiven by God and being reconciled to him and and not going to hell, but rather going to heaven. But you have to have Jesus and you have to be trusting only in him, not in your good works at all, not in your baptism, your church membership, nothing at all other than Jesus, the Jesus who is 100% God and is 100% man at the same time and is the only hope of sinners. You have to trust in him or you don't have God. Yes, God sees you, but all he sees is your sin. Even if you're a nice person, all he sees is the sin in your heart, which you have, by the way. We all do. And it angers him, because it's unforgiven sin. The only way it will get forgiven is if you flee to Jesus in faith and trust him alone to save you. If you're here listening to me now and you've never done that, please, please do that. For your own sake. And yes, for God's glory, but especially for your sake. And then you'll have access to God's gracious presence at all times. From here, throughout your life, and on into eternity. Because God is always with you. In a blessed way, if you're a Christian. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for its Teachings, we thank you that you are God that didn't just want biological descendants of Jacob to be in your church, but uh, Gentiles as well. And we thank you that there are, you are gathering in uh, uh, biological descendants of Jacob today, as well as non biological uh, descendants of Jacob, uh, we Gentiles today. We pray that you would grow your church, Lord, that you would grow your church through us. Would you please cause us, each one here, men, women, and children in this room and listening to me afar, would you cause each one to want to be a a bold witness for Christ in a world that desperately needs him? Would you please give us opportunities to share our faith, the desire and the courage to do so, and the faith to trust you with the results? And we thank you that you are building your house, Lord Jesus, and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we rejoice that we are a part of that house. And thank you for your love for us that caused us to be in this house, this spiritual house of yours. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.